0: Welcome to The Hot Dish. I'm Heidi Heitkamp. Uh, Just reminding everyone if they haven't heard, it's a big election year and there's going to be a lot of discussing 2024 over the next year. And today I'm going to kick that off with J.D. Scholten. He's an Iowa State rep and a One Country Project board member. And we'll be hearing from a young man who chose to leave the city and become a farmer, something we don't hear very often these days. But before we get to all that, I want you to get to know my brother, Joe, a little bit better. He really, you know, for all the teasing that I give him, he really is an accomplished guy. He is a Democrat who has a very, very successful talk show in the middle of what is some of the deepest red parts of our country. And uh, I think he's got a lot to offer when he talks about how we can maybe bring some middle back to politics. And even though we don't always agree, I have to confess He's pretty smart. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Joel. You know,
1: I grew up seventh in a seven person family, and we were all born in nine years. So the reality is, we're all pretty close. The one thing I think that uh, forms you is when you grow up in a 1,200 square foot sea. Close. You're absolutely, if you're going to be closer, you're going to be mortal enemies. And uh, my family chose to be close, and it's worked for us. We still get together quite a bit, more than most families ever would. In high school, I think athletics were far more important to me than academics. And I think it showed by the time I got to college. But uh, the truth of the matter is my father got sick while I was in college. And, you know, because I think he, he knew that I was part of what I was studying, he came to me and, you know, maybe you should take a semester off while I go through uh, Chemo. And my father at that time was running a utility that we call Redwater, the Rural Water District. He oversaw 500 miles of water line uh, in a whole bunch of cities that had joined the water system and a number of farms and ranches. And so uh, my father passed away quickly. And the next thing you knew, I was married, and had a childer, and, um, you know, and I stayed with the water system. And we started out, as I said, with 500 miles of pipe. And by the time I was done, 23 years later, we had uh, 2,800 miles of pipe. So that's a lot of construction and a lot of construction and a lot of overseeing millions upon millions of dollars of, of growth. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. During that time, I, I served in the North Dakota State Senate, representing the South Quadrant of, of North Dakota. I did that. Uh, For 14 years, as I try to remind Heidi, I'm the one high cap that never lost an election. I basically pulled the pin once I got into my profession now, uh, which is talk radio. So I started in talk radio after Ed Schultz retired, but went on to work for MSNBC. Uh, So he came to me and he was doing a national radio show and a national TV show. And he asked me to take his regional show, which was on a number of radio stations. So it's a good life. Every day I get to get up and I get to talk about issues and still be active in politics and yet still tell the good uh, story of of individuals out there in the upper Midwest that are trying to make it better. So I got two girls raised. I got uh, six grandkids. Uh, I've got the same wife for 40 years. My interests have always been riding Harley. Uh, I refereed a lot of football, uh, both high school and college. I also hunt. And that's one of the things I still do a lot of to this day. So I'm I'm the happiest in my life when I'm outdoors. I grew up duck and um, uh, goose hunting, which was fun. But I'm past that phase of my life to where you get up at four in the morning, go out in the slough and get your waders on and set up a bunch of decoys. Duck that hunting of is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And maybe I've gotten too lazy, but I pheasant hunt a lot. Uh, You get out there and you get to watch the dogs work. And, uh, you know, I've gone pheasant hunting a lot again this fall. I go on pheasant hunting trips. My biggest success was getting the state to put grant dollars together for local infrastructure. When I was in the state Senate, the Democrats, they were in the majority of the session before when I got in, we were down one seat. And, uh, you know, that was coming off of the Reagan era. And uh, the George H.W. Bush era. And so, you know, we went in with the Clinton era, but, you know, it was pretty more conservative Congress. And so, because of that, the tide started changing. And uh, we found ourselves, I think, down to 15 out of the, the 47 senators. And then I uh, got into leadership. And when I left, I'm kind of proud of the fact that we were only far away again from the majority. And so, you know, we were able to do something because it's more popular to be a Republican in North Dakota than a Democrat, which means that Democrats run as Republicans, if that makes any sense to folks. And so in the state Senate, there was about 10 votes there that I could always count on when we, when we pushed for something, when we wanted to get something done on the floor. And uh, that was kind of my strength was strategize on the floor, be able to negotiate. For a lot of years, Out of all the people in the minority, I passed more laws than anybody else. And the reason was I knew how to horse trade and I was pretty good at it. The rule of any legislator is to be accessible. You really shouldn't take the job if you're not willing to give out your cell phone. The truth is people should be able to call you. You need to be, uh, every other weekend we did this, uh, during the legislative session, you go to some small town cafe and you stand there and you take any at all. And, uh, You take the numbers down and and you do what you can do. But if you're not accessible, don't take the job. If you're not going to like that call at 11 o'clock at night uh, from some guy that is half hammered where his wife got the kids and he's expecting you to change that court ruling, then don't take the job. It doesn't mean you got to help the guy, but you're going to take the call or else you should have to run for the job. That's being a legislator means being accessible to people's. Problems. Just sticking up for people is what the legislature is all about, which is why I like the legislative branch far more than the executive branch, far more. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but as you can tell, I don't care. The truth is this Donald Trump made it okay if you're on wife number three and you're cheating on her. I mean, he made it okay if in a business deal you steal. I mean, he made it okay if you don't pay your bills and file bankruptcy. He made it okay to do the things that every day they do in their life, but they were raised probably by good parents or certainly by clergy to not live the life that that they're living. I'll give you a perfect example, folks. There was a home in Siston, South Dakota. Beautiful farm, absolutely beautiful farm. The lawn is manicured. Home was kept up. The home was probably built in the late 80s. um, Excellent grain bin site, leg system that goes with it. In case you're wondering what that is, it's the augers that cost a lot of money to move grain from bin to bin. That is right on the highway going into Sist South Dakota. And there was a flagpole in the middle of the yard that had F Biden. No, school bus went by that every day. Now, these people obviously financially were successful in life. You know, the image that they wanted to portray by keeping their place up and, and doing the things they did is normally the, the image of decency and respect. They're flying that flag and little kids are going by in a school bus every day. And Donald Trump made it okay for them to do that. And that's the beauty of the job I have now. I called them out. I didn't know their name. I just pointed out their location on air. I got a call from the state representative down there, and he said, well, they took down their flag. So, win one for me. The difference between Biden and Trump presidency is it proves that all these individuals that hate the words uh, career politician are wrong. I mean, J- Joe Biden got elected to the United States Senate when he wasn't eligible eligible to be in the United States Senate. He's 29 years old. Uh, now, fully got sworn in he was going to have his birthday. but. But think about the years of service that that man put in. And I think if you look at it, the the record of going across the aisle is stronger than any member of the United States Senate to the point where Democrats at times hated the guy, uh, which to me is a, a sign of how good he was at what he did. Joe Biden is politics at a mature level. It's governing at a mature level. Here in farm country, for example, Trump blew up through tariffs are a deal on soybeans with China. And so what was the answer? Uh, Weber Ross, one of his uh, cabinet members, looked at Trump and said, just pay him off. And every farmer uh, during that era got a, a $1. sixty-one paid from the government per bushel of soybeans. Now, the, the general public out there doesn't know that, and thank God they're going to hear it through this podcast. But imagine a farmer receiving a sixty-one for every bushel of soybeans on a field that gets 60 bushel an acre. Start doing the math. A quarter of land, 160 acres. The average farmer now, 5,000 acres. So the government wrote that big of a check. That was the policy. Well, that isn't governing. I mean, that isn't governing. If Don't tell me you're all about deficit if you're willing to just pay people off on a market that they used to have. It's good to get have an opportunity to tell you about myself. I'm a, as you can tell, if you listen to this podcast, completely different than Heidi in so many ways and completely like her in so many ways. The difference is she's refined. Uh, she'll say it to you in a, in a polite, educated, nice way. I'm a little more blue collar. I'm a little more, let's just get to it. And I think that I've gone to more of the school of hard knocks. I mean, I have. I have. I've done the kind of jobs where you get threatened with a shotgun. You know, I... Uh, and so to have the opportunity to tell you about what I've done, you know, it it sounds really know-it-all. I get it. But you know what? I've done a lot of it. And so I'm not going to apologize for preaching.
0: Joel and I will have some great conversations this year, and I hope you keep listening because we're going to be talking about issues that not a lot of people talk about. And those are the issues that are shaping rural and small-town life during this critical election year and beyond. Speaking of elections, I want to introduce you to J.D. Scholten. I always want to put a K in that. I don't know why that is, J.D. J.D. is a member of the Iowa House of Representatives, and he serves on the board of the One Country Project. He's one of our original board members. Um, thanks so much for joining me today, J.D.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why you want to tell, because we mispronounced my last name. We we pronounce it the German way when it's actually Dutch. And so it should be Scholten. And so oh, when I campaign in the Dutch regions, that's when yeah. the, <laughs> they, they, let, they definitely let me know about that. <laughs>
0: So you just announced your re-election bid. Um, I, I think you're an anomaly. You're one of the few elected Democrats in your region of the state, and that makes you in some ways a unicorn in Iowa, but maybe kind of on the vanguard of some changes. And so we want to talk a little bit about how you got elected, what kind of campaign you ran, what did you talk about, and how do you see the opportunities for other Democrats, in, especially in your area of Iowa, outside of the metro Iowa and surrounding areas where we can see some Democratic representation, how do we build that in Iowa?
2: Right. And so r- right now in the state of Iowa, I'm one of two Democrats at the Capitol in the western half. And I uh, the interstate uh, 35 cuts us in half. There's Ames and Des Moines are a part of that if you go outside of that metropolitan area the entire Western half, there's just two of us and the other gentleman won by six votes. And then in Northwest Iowa, it's just me. And so we've been having so many pre-legislative meetings and it's it's pretty much me and like 16 Republicans. And so um, I, I think that's one area where Democrats really need to, to think about is how do we get the Democratic message in some of these areas where there's just no D- Democratic elected official. And so this is a little bit new for us in Iowa. We used to have more even here in Sioux City, we used to have more, and then um, we just the past couple elections have not gone our way. And since 2018, I would say, and it's it's very frustrating uh, because when you go out and talk to folks, like there's more folks who are I feel Democrats, but but uh, the problem here, especially in Sioux City, is we have low voter, voter turnout. There's yeah, we're we're a city of 85,000 people, only 26,000 are registered to vote. Like that's, that's to me just, I mean, that's the problem is there's, we're an arm's length away from Des Moines, which is an arm's length away from DC and feel, and people f- just feel like, like, why bother? We're, we're sick of politics. We're frustrated with both parties. W- w- why go out there? And so that's, that's a huge part of my 2024 effort is really focus on voter turnout and, and broadening our, our democratic party and who, who we bring in, because you go to a democratic central committee meeting here and it's all old white people, to be honest. Uh, not for a lack of effort, we've, we've been trying to diversify, but that's the folks who tend to show up. And so I've been starting this group and it started with two of us or, or I guess three of us, two other people and myself. And then last month we broadened it out to, I think there was about 12 to 15 people there and it's all people, uh, my age or younger, uh, most people haven't been that active, but been democratic curious. And, and we're really trying to broaden that out and, and just create meetings where, uh, people, don't feel so overwhelmed because when you go to a Democratic meeting, it's pretty structured and and not as welcoming as you'd want it to be. And so and then the caucuses, for the most part, they're long and tedious. You know, like it's it's commitment. It's a couple hours that night. And
0: yeah. And if it's snowing and if it's <laughs> below zero, you're not going to mm-hmm. be all that excited to come, I guess. Huh? Exactly. One thing that I've seen as a trend is the Democratic Party not fielding candidates, not being able to find candidates. Do you have that same problem in Northwest Iowa?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one thing that I I feel if I'm looking at ways that we can improve the Democratic Party nationally, it's investing in people that will want to do this because those are your best door knockers. Those people, like if even in a race that you don't think is winnable, uh, that I think that was a huge part of my 2018 campaign success. We had great candidates all throughout the district, even in tough uh, races, and I helped fund a couple of those campaigns and and work with fundraising to get, get them some money because they were putting forth the effort. Because otherwise, like if you're going to lose by uh, 60 to 40 or at best, like some of these races are 75-25, and running for office is is difficult putting your name on the ballot and all that. We got to give them a reward and figure out a way that that it's it benefits people to do this. So. Yeah,
0: I mean everybody kind of forgets that it was Iowa that launched Barack Obama. Oh, um, absolutely. You know, he, and he, he, he his success in Iowa was really what uh, propelled him forward.
2: I mean, I I get why Iowa, like Obama to Iowans, was that something different, and that's what we continue to strive for. And and unfortunately, they went the other way with Trump, and he was just something different. And people have gotten behind him. And so I think there is this desire for something else. And I was talking with the New York Times reporter. She was doing the caucus here and, and everything. And and she's like, What do you think about Iowans feeling about the Trump Biden rematch? And I was like, Well, Iowans want something different always, <laughs> it seems like when it when it comes at national level stuff. And it just A little frustration.
0: Well, I I think Iowa is a case study for the Democratic Party because, I mean, Barack Obama won Iowa twice. Um, Tom Harkin, one of the most progressive um, members of Congress, served uh, in the Senate for decades, really. Um, And you used to elect Democratic governors. Uh, Vilsack, our current secretary of agriculture, was, in fact, um, a governor Mm -hmm. of Iowa. And so you're kind of like North Dakota in some ways, where all of a sudden We're on the outs and it didn't take that long to get there. And I I know you feel the way I do, that a lot of this is driven by um, people not seeing themselves in the Democratic Party nationally. And so talk a little bit about how state parties like ours can differentiate from some of the more contentious issues that drive our rural voters, our swing voters away from the Democratic brand.
2: What I tend to tell folks is Iowa is geographically between Wisconsin and Nebraska and South Dakota. And politically, we're there as well. And I think 2024 is going to be a really big year on determining, are we more a purple state like Wisconsin or are we more ruby red like the South Dakota and Nebraska? I am convinced, absolutely convinced, that we can bring back Iowa to be in a purple state. I, I, I don't think I would still be in politics if I... I didn't think that was the case.
0: So tell me, tell me, J.D., why are the Iowans, I mean, these are good people, would never tell a lie, always help your neighbor, not say a mean word uh, to people, um, yep. be polite. What is the charm, do you think, of Donald Trump, other than he he's something different? Do they like this something different yeah. after, you know, the past uh, eight years?
2: I'll say just what I've I've kind of seen is they like winners. And so the fact that Trump lost, like, I I think that the Republican primary right now is so fascinating because everyone's like, oh, Trump is getting over 50% and all this. But if he's running as a quote unquote uh, incumbent, like 50% is nothing to brag about. He should be 80%. You know, he shouldn't
0: have any meaningful opposition. Really,
2: Exactly. Exactly. And and so that's the part to me that I don't think is really talked about enough. Um, but in like, you don't see the huge Trump shrines like you used to. And so, and just to hear Republicans openly, like the DeSantis folks, for the most part, what I hear is that the fact they don't care about DeSantis. They just are like, we just want somebody other than Trump who's kind of Trump light uh, because, because Trump's too far and we don't like him. And so I don't know, there's, it's it's weird to me because like I go back to Steve King in the age of Trumpism. Steve, I mean, Steve King I think was a little bit of ahead of his time. I'm not trying to give him credit for anything, but,
0: <laughs> but you almost but, beat him.
2: Yeah, I know, yeah. but like there was a reason why the Republican Party here in Iowa decided to split with him, and I, I, during the age of Trumpism. And I don't see like to me, like I guess to Democrats, we don't see a big difference between King and Trump. But for whatever reason, Trump was so up here and, and King's out here. I see mm-hmm. something that that split happening right now a little bit here in Iowa as well. And so mm-hmm.
0: let's talk a little bit about the highlight uh, that is Iowa for the Republican caucus and uh, kind of some of the activities that you've seen. I, I heard you have kind of a fascinating story to talk about as it relates to a Nikki Haley's uh, canvassers.
2: Yeah, so we had the last snowstorm, I would say. <laughs> I was out shoveling and it was right after Christmas. And I saw these three guys door knocking and I saw they were about to skip my door. And I was just kind of <laughs> like, what? what are these guys selling? And then they I had saw good the, lists. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they, they were smart. But uh, they they uh, ended up, I mean, it was three, they were probably like 22 years old, uh, three guys. And uh, they were for America for Prosperity, and which was the pack that endorsed Nikki Haley. And so they were out door knocking for her. And so, I mean, just being into politics and everything, I just started talking with them. And none of them were really for Nikki. One was for Trump and two were for Ramaswamy, I believe, initially. And I mean, one kid was, I don't think he was even a Republican. He said he was an independent. And so we started talking about stuff and, and what, what matters to them. And then I kind of let them in, like finally, after I don't know, about five minutes, I go, well, I'm a state representative, I'm a Democrat. And then they're really interested. And it was a really good conversation. And two of them, I would say one for sure, but I think two of them, I would say by the time we were done talking, were Biden curious. And then the guy who I, I think kind of orchestrated everything, he was just Republican, uh, through and through, but and he, I think he was raised that way. I don't think he was very passionate about any particular thing, but just kind of how he was raised. And the thing that really stuck out to me is, I go, "Well, how much are they they paying you?" And they're, they're, the whole reason they're doing it is because they're getting twenty bucks an hour. I go, "If I offered twenty two bucks an hour, would you come back here tomorrow and door knock? Would you door knock with me?" They're Like, <laughs> yeah. So, like, <laughs> that's that's the reality. <laughs> like, but, and and you never know. Like, they're, they say like. Uh, DeSantis has had this, they've knocked so many doors and all this stuff, but like, if you don't have people who are passionate behind the door knocking and all that, like it shows and
0: you're not convincing people. Were were these young men, were they um, from Iowa?
2: That will give them credit. They are from Iowa, but they're from uh, outside of Council Bluffs. So to me, that shows like they couldn't get anybody in Sioux City. They had to import them from somewhere else. And- I would not think that America for Prosperity is lacking for money. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a lack For those
0: For those uninitiated, that's the Koch Brother uh, yep. Super PAC. The Koch Brother group has endorsed Nikki Haley. When you look at the, the caucuses and the structure of a caucus, I think a lot of people are curious. They haven't done it before. And I was yep. famous for their caucus nominating process. Can you just give a little rundown on what that looks like on the ground?
2: Yeah. So the Democrats and the Republicans do it differently. So in order to participate, you have to be a registered member of that party. So I couldn't go to the Republican. I I guess you could attend, but you can't participate. During the Democrat, the 2020 Democrat, there was a lot of people who just watched, like whether it was press, whether it's at, at my precinct, I had a father son. The guy was an independent and he just wanted to show his son how it worked. So on Monday, well, it's different this year, and Republicans do it different than Democrats. So I don't really know how Republicans do it, but the way they do it, I think they just write it down on a card their their top preference and their second and third choices. And I don't know how they tally it up. So, uh, but it seems like that's what Democrats should be doing. I'm not going to lie; <laughs> yeah, that could have solved <laughs> a lot of things. Basically, it's you go up, you come to an, uh, a room with your neighbors. Usually, it's in like a high school gym or something like that, and. What the, the way the Democrats did it in 2020 was every campaign gave a speech. And once the speeches were done, you split to your first place. And so everyone went to their corner. So once you went to your corner, there was a threshold and you had to do some math. And if the person was viable or not, if they weren't viable, those people are all out for grabs. They could either go home or they could go to another campaign. And so that's when things get really interesting because it's neighbors talking to neighbors saying, Hey, this is why I think you should if you like this candidate, yeah. you'd like our candidate, things like that. And so
0: it's kind of a ranked choice voting, right?
2: Yeah, but it's some but ways. after after two, then you're done.
0: Oh okay. uh, there's
2: no yeah. Um ranked choice would be better.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but but it is a format that I think benefits someone like Donald Trump, where it, it really is the true believers who show up. Yes.
2: Yes, and, and the intent of it, and, and one of Harkin's right-hand uh, people, Richard Bender, was kind of the, the creator of the, he, he gets a lot of credit for cr- helping create the caucus, and the intent is for party organizing. And I, can, I understand the, the national narrative where they don't want Iowa, there's this and that. The beauty about Iowa is that, for the most part, you need retail politics in order to win here. And you can't just go up on TV and run ads. We needed to engage. You, you needed to get out there and your campaign needed to get out there and engage with the voters. And that is something I do not want lost. It doesn't have to be in Iowa, but that is the, that was such a key part. And then you had eight days until New Hampshire. So that allowed for time to build momentum to into that. And then you had bigger states after that. And I like that model because the the way that it is set up this year, it's it's very fast. It's only a few days till the next one, and it's not really meant for retail organizing in retail politics. And there's two big states within the first couple of weeks, and so if you win that, that's that's kind of where it goes. And so I just to me, we, I don't want the Democratic Party to lose that aspect of retail politics.
0: Yeah, amen. Um, So explain where Sioux City is and how that's different from Des Moines, you know, how it's different from maybe Ames, Iowa, and what you hope the Democratic Party will be talking about Mm -hmm. in this election cycle.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, Sioux City is in my heart. (laughs) Uh, No, it's where Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska all meet. So it's a tri-state area. Uh, We're in Northwest Iowa, Uh, we're a three-hour drive from Des Moines. We're an hour south of Sioux Falls, hour and a half north of Omaha. And we're an immigrant meatpacking town, and we've been that way since the 1880s. We're very blue-collar, river town. And I would say economically, we haven't bounced back since the 2008 economic crisis for, for a lot of these parts. That, to me, is, I feel like being from here is really what, allowed me to be a good politician in running for the fourth district because we're as far as you can go in every direction, it's agriculture and in the agriculture economy, the people who are on the ground doing the work, the farmers, the workers at the plants and the communities, we feel that there is an extraction, whether it's, you know, it's as much as we create corn they get shipped uh, out. So our soybeans, same thing. Hogs, same thing. Cattle, same thing. Uh, even even wind energy, it gets extracted. And even our children, it gets they they leave. And so we just feel like we're not getting back what we're producing out there. And at the same time, and I think COVID really put a spotlight on this, where you have all these companies making record profits, uh, especially meat packers. You yeah. have consumers paying the most they ever have for uh, meat prices. You have farmers getting squeezed both on the input side and the market side. And you have uh, the workers working in dangerous situations for low wages and then being deemed essential yet they're not getting paid to be essential. And so I think all that has really been the uh, COVID put a spotlight on it. And it's, that's why I feel like we're seeing these strikes, uh, the UAW strikes and, and different things like that throughout the nation, but specifically here in the Midwest. And that's why I think there is a movement for the Democratic Party in this, what I would like to say, the post-Trump world. So I'm optimistic uh, that there's some to happen. And I just, like, I'm seeing, I'm trying to see a few years ahead because I think there's so much potential in the Midwest to win back some of these states. And when you think about the Senate, I just think that, like, we we can't democrats seem to be narrowing our path right now when we should be expanding and and that's where as an iowan as a democrat i get very frustrated with our party
0: yeah well i mean i want i want everybody to know one fun fact about you and you know what the fun fact is um oh dear lord
2: uh <laughs> you mean i'm a baseball player
0: yes i think it's <laughs> a, a pitcher you're a pitcher yeah
2: so well, and this here's kind of the interesting thing is that, I mean, if it wasn't for COVID, I wouldn't be playing. During my 2020 campaign, I mean, everything shut down, and so I'm just a competitive person, and I need like a physical release. I need to do something physically to just kind of get stress out. And uh, I had probably had a few too many whiskeys one night, going down a, a YouTube rabbit hole at pitching mechanics, and I immediately the next day ordered a couple dozen baseballs and a net. And I hadn't thrown in six, seven years and I just started throwing again. And then after my campaign, the next year, my, my, com- my campaign for Congress in 2020, after I lost, uh, that next summer, I wanted to spend more time with my family because I, you know how much campaigns just suck everything out of you and, and you don't get to spend as much time with the folks you want to. And so as my folks uh, age a little bit, I want to hang out with them more. And so I was like, well, I'm, I'll spend some of the summers with them up in Minnesota. And my old town team baseball, Minnesota has amazing town team baseball and my old team, I reached out to them and I said, Hey, I don't know what I have, but what I have, I'll give my all. And I hadn't played in 67 years and I ended up going 10 and one with like a one something ERA and, and, and did really well. And I did again the next year. And then when I decided to run for state house, I asked, what were my obligations after my first session that, that summer of the first session? And they said, Oh, it's an off year. You can kind of take some time for yourself. I'm like, so could I potentially play baseball in Europe? And they go, yeah. And so I reached out to a team in December. It didn't work out, but then they called me in June and then ended up uh, getting an offer to play baseball in the Netherlands, which is the top level in Europe and played against a bunch of former big leaguers and a a bunch of former minor leaguers and just had a great experience.
0: Did you have an ERA of one?
2: No, I... uh, like I still had more strikeouts than innings pitched. I had more, I had less hits allowed than innings pitched and stuff like that. So like things that I care more about than DRA.
0: Well, but it's, it, it's great. I mean, it's great that, you know, p- people think politicians are just one dimensional. That's all you care about. you're just out there every day in this political competition and, and most really good politicians are very well-rounded you know, kind of available people who really care about their communities. And so I, I think, you know, when when all they see is the rancor and the discord that is Washington, DC, they don't realize that in every city in America, you know, they figured out how to take care of their towns. They figured out how to work together. And and so, you know, when when that poison from above seeps into our communities, then then we have problems. But for the most part, you know, people get along pretty well.
2: Yeah. And, and I will say after my 2018 campaign, uh, the woman I was dating, uh, we went on our parents' farm and the neighboring farm had some, a farmer had some cattle uh, on their farm. And so he came over to check on them and he looked at me and he he could tell like the wheels were, were connecting to something. And he goes, you're the baseball player, aren't you? Yeah. And I thought, all the millions of dollars of ads I put into that campaign and the fact that he thought me I was a baseball player rather than a politician, I'm like, that's success for me
0: that, that that's exactly right. Well JD, you know I'm gonna wish you well and keep up your hard work And obviously we watch Iowa pretty closely at one country project because it is one of those places like you said that probably doesn't vote, kind of their heritage. Um, but, you know, you, you just never know. And obviously the Democratic Party um, uh, reducing the, I wouldn't say value, but basically relegating Iowa to a second tier in in their selection process is, is something that I, I'm not convinced it was the right thing, um, but I understand it given the voting patterns yeah. in the last um, uh, two cycles. So-
2: I'll say the optimistic thing for us, Iowa Democrats, is that this will now allow us to focus on ourselves rather than national things coming in every four years.
0: Yeah. And 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 defining you. Exactly. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that, that this, you know, where before, you know, when you have, you know, dozens of candidates going around and they're all trying to, uh, out-progress of each other to get that nomination, you know, that's probably not the version of the Democratic Party that you want to be on display every four years. Exactly. Yeah. So. We just so enjoy having you on the board, the the insights no. that you bring to the board. We wish you nothing but the best of luck in your reelect and uh, stick with us. You're a voice that needs to be heard nationally. Oh, because well, if we if we are going to be successful going forward in bringing not just Democrats, but moderates back to state houses, moderates back to, you know, the fold, we need to field candidates who reflect those values. And you certainly fit in that mold.
2: Well, thank you very much, Senator. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, take care, J.D. Stay warm. We talk a lot about what's happening in family farms in recent decades. In fact, there was a recent New York Times article about how many college graduates leave Iowa and other farming states after graduation. These will be important topics this year, this election year. And and honestly, it's not all doom and gloom. In fact, some young people are leaving big cities and desk jobs to get back to the land. They're choosing to become rural farmers instead of city office workers. And we caught up with one young farmer in Virginia who did just that.
3: My name is Jesse Strait. I'm the owner and farmer of Wiffletree Farm. We're in Warrington, Virginia, and my wife and I started this farm in 2009. We raise and sell chicken, eggs, turkey, pork, and beef, and everything's raised on fresh pasture, no antibiotics, no chemicals, no GMO grains, and our beef is 100% grass-fed. The other thing that's distinctive about us is we sell directly to customers. So we do all the work uh, that's involved in terms of processing, marketing, delivering, customer service. And we we sell out of our farm store, we do what we call neighborhood deliveries, and then sell to wholesale customers. I grew up here in Warrington. My family, my parents weren't farmers, and I was still a normal suburban kid. Went to UVA, studied religious studies, and did the pre-med sciences, and was thinking about trying to figure out what I was going to do, and was kind of really not quite sure. And then I read a book by Wendell Berry after college that really sort of caught my imagination. And he presents this life that's sort of a vision of the good life that's a bit of a critique of our modern life, where the modern life is so characterized by the disintegration of your life. You know, like your kids go here, your work's here, your friends are here, your extended film is over here, you you move everywhere for a job. It's just like your life is pulled in a hundred different directions and Berry's... You know, critique is like, while this has made us very wealthy, it's not maybe made us so happy. And that really like made a lot of sense for me. Um, and so we moved back to my hometown and had this idea of, you know, um, having our own business, raising really good food. And I guess the other part of it is just like the state of food and farming in the United States is more characterized by an emphasis on the consideration of cheap and convenient. Whereas like considering the health of the food, which you kind of think about is the whole fundamental point of food, right? S- sustaining human life was more of a after consideration. And, and also not to mention like the health of the land, the water, the air, you know, which of course facilitates the future production of healthy food and human flourishing. So those were, uh, you know, I saw like, okay, here's an area where there's a need. Like good food is not prevalent. And, and good farming is not prevalent. And here's something where I could do a little good. It's something where I can try and put together this integrated life that I wish for. So we moved to Warrington in 2009 and, you know, got 50 baby chicks and tried to figure it out and made lots of mistakes and just developed our skills, our customer base, until the farming is our only source of income. We don't have any other off-farm jobs or, you know, um, and um, have a great crew of people. We have great customers. We raise incredible food. Our land is benefited every year by what we're doing. You know, it's a it's a really good life for my family and me. Production is not the hardest part. Like we can teach someone how to raise a really good, say chicken or laying hen more quickly than probably we can teach someone how to market and run a business and manage employees. That's the harder part. And that's the thing that's more rare among farmers is like, It's one thing for a farmer to be able to raise good food. And that, that definitely takes like a lot of skill and knowledge and experience and attention. But I feel like it's harder to then get a business going. And like the whole thing about like selling directly to a customer and everything that's entailed in that is like probably more intimidating to more people than raising food. So in one sense, you might say like a business like ours is an uphill battle, right? We're not cheap and we're not convenient. So I was like, well, that's a bad recipe, right? But the other thing is like, in another sense, it's not an uphill battle because like if you actually learn about, if you went and saw the poultry houses and you actually learned about like the nutritional value of that food versus ours and you saw like what was being exploited and what in that system and what is being benefited in our system, be no brainer. Like we should be charging twice what we're charging for what we're, we're providing Like we're, what we're doing is so obviously better. It it just, you know, we just have to like connect with customers who, who are open to seeing that and who value that this world could be full of farms like us just, you know, creating inches of topsoil and like creating like good clean water and air and great food and like communities that aren't being exploited and people and workers that aren't being exploited and animals that aren't being exploited. And, um, And I know there's a sacrifice involved. People work hard for what they have. So I'm not like trying to be flippant about that. But I think, like I said, I think what we're providing here, I think we're giving people a good deal. If you really think about like what, how much better what we're providing is than the conventional side.
0: What a wonderful story. Thank you, Jesse, for sharing it with all of us. And again, thank you to JD Scholten for fighting the good fight in Iowa and joining me today on today's podcast. Joel will be back in two weeks, so join us then. To learn more about the work of One Country Project, visit OneCountryProject.com. And if you like the hot dish, and I hope you do, write a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And to support the important work that the One Country Project is doing to elevate the needs of rural America in Washington, please visit onecountryproject.com forward slash give. We will see you all the next time we're together on the next Hot Dish podcast.